Hello, podcast land. Welcome to November. Uh, we are back in your ear holes. Uh, this is Tour Guide Tell All, and we are back with another exciting episode. And uh, this is your friendly neighborhood semi uh, tour guide podcast where we talk about American history, we talk about scandals, we talk about elections, we talk about all kinds of fun and exciting things. Uh, and before we get into that, uh, I am Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are the, the Rebecca. <laughs> um, and we're here. And I guess this is a tradition because last year, right before or right around the election, we did an election episode. And so this year it's an election and we're doing an election episode. So obviously we know what we're doing at the beginning of November 2022. We just have to pick which uh, election we're going to do. But we are going to talk about the election of 1860 which is so full of good juice. And this is going to be like Becca's like primo moment. She's going to shower her genius upon us all. Uh, but before we get to that, I just want to say that um, if you're in the DC area, we are doing all kinds of tours. We're back out. It's fall. It's lovely out. And we really hope that you'll come out on a tour with us. And we also want to give a special shout out to our patrons. We've had some really great patron episodes the past couple of uh, months. We did a ghost tour for October and we talked about Woodrow Wilson for September and things are really exciting so we would we love our patrons and uh, would love you to become a patron if you're not already uh, feel free to join us our patrons are our lifeblood and the wind beneath our wings and they give us all kinds of great uh, inspiration in terms of like what episodes we should talk about so if you become a patron we might just talk about something that you're interested in hearing about so however Becca this is it this is you Oof. Are you ready? Yeah. Oh, I'm ready. I am ready. I am ready for this. I'm so excited. This is something we we have talked so much about the 1850s and 1860s in previous episodes, but we've not really nailed in on sort of this political moment of the election of 1860. And as is often kind of true with so many episode topics, we, I think, are going to find ourselves sort of accidentally relevant to the world in our current moment without overtly talking about 2020 and 2021, I think that it's very hard as a historian and as tour guides, as we so often talk about this era on tours, you know, listeners know we do a Lincoln assassination tour. So often you have to kind of touch on how Lincoln gets to the White House uh, on that tour. And there's just so many themes from this election that I think still find relevancy in our world today. So um, I'm excited to jump into this. I agree. And one of the things that I want to, before we unleash your genius on the world. Uh, we're setting the part like, too high, Rebecca. <laughs> no, I'm really not. Listen, if there's something about Lincoln that Becca does not know, it was probably made up by somebody. Like she knows everything. <laughs> but I want to just mention before we kind of dive in here, this is, um, history is hard because we know how it turns out for them. And they didn't at the time. And that's obviously true of like all history, obviously. But I particularly bring it up here because this is such an important inflection point in American history. And there's so many things that happen after this because of this election. But it's sort of key to really remember they don't know that at the time. They don't know there's going, I mean, the Civil War was doesn't come out of nowhere. Like there had been really serious portents of a war and it had been, you know, sides have been, people have been taking sides for decades but they don't know what's going to happen like when it does. And also like Lincoln is so much a part of our modern mythos. And it's important to remember, I think that he, there was really no indication that he was going to be Lincoln. Like, obviously that was his name, duh. But like that he was going to be the man that he becomes and the president that he becomes. There's really no like way to, for them to have known that uh, at the time. And so it's kind of an interesting moment to sort of put yourself behind things and imagine that you don't know how this is all going to turn out. And that's all I have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely 100%. So I think we have to set the stage a little bit before we jump right into 1860. Um, if you have not listened to some of our previous podcast episodes, um, 
anything sort of Civil War related is going to tie into this. Um, episodes we've done about people like James Buchanan, uh, Henry Clay, so much of a, the election of 1860 is really kind of building off of what's happening in 1776. Yeah. Um, but really, let's just say the last kind of 40 years of American political history sort of building to this moment. But as we get to 1860, we're seeing a shift in political party structure. And of course, at this time in American history, we have more political parties than we have today in terms of really actively engaged parties, parties that are winning elections, parties that are holding seats. But one of the sort of prevalent parties of the early 19th century, the Whig Party, is essentially dissolving. There's not much of the Whig Party left. Many Whigs are flocking to the new Republican Party. And by 1860, Republicans are winning governor seats. They're winning um, other sort of statewide elections. So there's some building momentum for the Republican Party. But not every Whig becomes a Republican. So you have some popular Whigs that are flocking to other parties that are starting to try to reform under new names. And you still have the Democratic Party, which has built quite a bit of juice uh, in the years leading up to 1860, particularly in the South. Um, however, as we're in 1860, there's sort of one massive issue that hangs over everything. That is every discussion, every choice Congress makes, every choice a state legislature makes really boils down to this, and it's slavery. It's yes. slavery, the expansion yes. of, the practice of, the um, continued sort of addition of uh, we're growing as a country, we're adding new states, we're moving west, and with every new state, right, this becomes the question. Will this be a slave state? Will this be a free state? Who gets to make that decision? Who gets to make that choice? And things are growing increasingly violent in the yes. United States as we lead to 1860. I think sometimes it's easy to point uh, to the Civil War as the inflection point of violence. That is not true. No, in fact, there had been, and we should do a whole pot about Charles Sumner because I think he's amazing, but there had been literally violence on the floor of the United States Senate. Like somebody takes a cane to a senator. And so this is, the violence has been all over the place. This is literally on everyone's mind politically. Slavery is, it, it is hard to imagine one issue now dominating our political life in such a total way as it slavery did. But there's people are lined up on one side or the other, essentially. And there are some people who are kind of in the middle and moderates and they want to chart a more moderate course. But like basically slavery is the topic on everybody's mind as we're sort of approaching uh, 1860. And it's not just philosophical, right? It's not just people debating whether a free country can maintain the system. It is guerrilla warfare breaking out in Kansas. They don't call it mm -hmm. bleeding Kansas for nothing. People mm -hmm. are dying. People are fighting. Uh, there's an armed, you know, um, uprising, right, led by John Brown. We have people who are who are taking up arms. We have people mm -hmm. who are starting to take paramilitary action in regards to whether or not we are going to continue as a country that allows slavery. And John Brown's raid is less than a year before this election. It is in Virginia, what was what's now West Virginia, Harper's Ferry, yes. but was then Virginia. And John Brown's a white guy who dies for slavery. Like that's, it is hard to really underscore what a big deal that was, that a white man is going to take up arms for African-American freedom. Uh, and so this is going to really galvanize both sides of the country. In the South, they see this man who has is overthrowing their way of life in the north they see somebody like a, a martyr for freedom and so john brown really underscores what a big divide this is and i feel like that's such a the john brown really informs this election in so many critical ways yeah, there's, he is going to galvanize people on this issue. He is going to inspire many, but also strike fear in the hearts of many that this is only going to escalate, right? When we're talking yeah. about seizing a federal property, when we're talking about arming people, this is something people are worried. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit more about moderates, but there are people trying to chart a moderate path through this because there is a fear of what kind of violence will continue to escalate. I think this kind of goes without saying, but it's good to note that we're at a real time in our history as we approach 1860, when sectionalism is really dominating American discourse, there's real divide 
on a state to state level, on a region by region level. Um, so there's tribalism and sectionalism in ways that have sort of ebbed and flowed throughout American history, but it's really prominent in this time. And there's sort of an understanding um, that if you are going to have a political win, you are going to have to figure out how to build a coalition because it's not just going to be enough to carry the states that your party has already always carried, states are really starting to shift political allegiance and um, alignment because of the shifting in um, political parties at this time. So sectionalism is very high and any candidate running for president is gonna have to think about how can I bring together fiercely divided parts of this country um, because you have to, ha you can't just win winning a couple of states, right? You have to have a plurality. So you're going right, to have and to you figure have out how to build them together. The two previous presidents have both been Northerners, Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan, with strong Southern sympathy. So that's going to be kind of the idea is that you have to find either a Southerner with Northern sympathies or a Northerner with Southern sympathies in order to sort of get a plurality too. So that's also coming into this and informing what's happening. And then I feel like we can't really talk about 1860 without going back to 1858 for a moment and talk about Abraham Lincoln's run for the Senate. So um, Lincoln only serves, prior to being president of the United States, only serves um, one term in Congress and the House of Representatives, but he runs twice unsuccessfully in within a span of like five years for a Senate seat. And in 1858, a man named Stephen Douglas is up for re-election in the US Senate in Illinois, and Lincoln is mounting a pretty strong challenge to Stephen Douglas. Um, there's a lot of uh, sort of Whigs and former Whigs that are coalescing around Lincoln. Um, he's building sort of this um, reputation. Uh, this is part of him also thinking ahead and building a profile on a more national scale. So as is often the case, even today, he's running for Senate, but this is about visibility. It's about building name recognition. It's about laying out his policies because he knows that um, perhaps he might run for another office even higher in the future. So you got to sort of build your way up. What happens um, during this campaign is what has become, many of us study in school, what has become sort of this pivotal moment, the Lincoln-Douglas debates. These are seven debates. They are like prize fighter matches. Like these, imagine like the World Series, like a truly like athletic competition. People will flock, not just Illinois voters, but people flock to the state to see these two men, both considered um, really strong orators, both considered very uh, strong, smart, intelligent politicians. Uh, Stephen Douglas is no slouch himself. And these two men are fighting off. Uh, and I mean, this is just, it's like the event. It's the event of 1858. Yeah. It's very much like when the two best teams in like the playoffs play at an early stage of the playoffs and they don't end up meeting in the World Series. That's kind of what I like in this too. Like it's an early playoff game, but it's like the game. Like they're just, they're two prize fighters at the top of their game, just kind of hammering away at each other. And it's really amazing. And these debates are going to really start explicitly hitting on the issues that the entire election of 1860 is going to center around. Can we continue as a slave power? Can we continue to expand states with slavery? Um, Douglas will argue that it is the, the point of this country is that you know, settlers can determine what their state will be. Citizens have a right to say um, what they can and cannot do. Um, so we're going to start to see how these arguments sort of play out. Uh, and again, Douglas is running for the Senate in Illinois. This is not a slave, you know, this is not a large slave owning state. Um, but there starts to be these sort of intellectual kind of arguments being made for why the federal government shouldn't take action. So there's um, a lot of really juicy stuff, and we should do a whole episode sometime on the Lincoln-Douglas debates. But the these seven debates are really just like a little taste of what's going to come in 1860. As I'm sure many of you listening know, um, Lincoln does not win the Senate seat. No. Uh, Stephen Douglas wins, um, but the Republican candidate, Abraham Lincoln, actually wins the popular vote. Um, so it's sort of this weird little thing of like, he wins this popular vote, but the Democrats wins more seats. And so they're going to reelect uh, Douglas. So Douglas gets appointed by the state legislature. But we're going to start to see this. Um, dynamic play out where these Republican ideas are popular, but Democrats still hold a lot of seats, a lot of powers in the case of the 1860 election, a fair number of electoral votes. And mm. so we're getting to this point of tension when you have ideas that 
are are that have both sides believe in very fiercely and trying to get your side to the top is a really a struggle. So I, I try not to get too into the weeds, but that's where we're getting to as we approach the election of 1860. Did I forget anything? I mean, there's a lot of cultural context. No, here. you're good. I think we're good. Yeah. All right. So let's just start with the Republican Party because we're talking about some names that are pretty familiar. Um, the Republican Party at this point, as I said, is still emerging as a national sort of political power player, but it's come off a series of wins. So um, it's feeling good. It's won like some governor seats and some, you know, like congressional seats and like it's doing well, but there's also a lot of people in the Republican Party uh, because it's still kind of a new party. There's a lot of um, popular names, popular faces. Um, they're going to hold their convention in Chicago. And as they enter into the convention uh, in the summer of 1860, William Seward is really the front runner. William Seward uh, of New York. Uh, Seward has been a longtime political operative at this point. He has many friends in the party uh, and he is really seen as like the guy. This is probably the guy that's going to win the nomination, but there's about eight people with enough juice to mount a serious run for this nomination. I feel that often um, when we talk about Lincoln, we tend to talk about him in this election as like an out of nowhere candidate, like then Lincoln comes in and nobody knows who he is. That's not really how this played out. Um, Lincoln from 1858 to 1860 is building a national profile the Senate run against Douglas, these debates. He makes sure that a biography is published about him in the lead up to 1860. Does that sound familiar or does it sound familiar, right? Hmm. You gotta have somebody, either you write a book or have someone write a book about you yeah. so that people around the country can start to get to know your story. So Lincoln is, um, I think, pragmatic as he approaches the election of 1860. He knows that there's a chance he won't get this nomination, but he's building himself up to be a player in this election whether it's to win the nomination, whether it's to end up as a vice presidential candidate, or whether it's to get close to whoever the nominee is going to be. But he's angling to be a national player. So he's not like this guy who just shows up and they're like, let's just vote for this man we've never heard of. Yeah, I think that that's so much like a part of the, like the Lincoln mythos is that he like comes from nowhere and surprises everyone. And that's, and that he's also somehow not ambitious. Like, Ambition is ambition. Lincoln had ambition too. He wanted to, like, he was a good guy and wanted to do the right thing, but like he was ambitious and a great politician. And you can kind of see that in this, the way that he approaches this. Um, it is not clear whether even Lincoln thought that he would be a viable candidate for president in 1860, but he wanted to get his name out there. He wanted to mount some kind of a campaign uh, and sort of become part of the political machinery uh, in the Republican party at that time. And so you can see Lincoln out of nowhere. I've never really um, bought that idea. It's, he doesn't come from nowhere. He comes from sort of having been in the party for a while. Uh, Seward was though much yeah. more like qualified and much more famous and also much more radical. Yes. This is going to be one of the biggest um, problems for Seward is he is viewed by many in the party as being too radically anti-slavery, too radically pro-abolition. And I think mm -hmm. this is important to note. Even the party that will accept a platform of stopping the expansion of slavery, they are still hesitant to be entering into this election as a party that's going to abolish slavery the, the moment they come into power. Yes. Because they know they can't win that way. That's the concern, right? And there's a worry that Seward is represents too much of that side of the party. Lincoln will sort of play up the fact that he isn't, right, like as as radical, as aggressive. Mm -hmm. He plays up the fact that he considers himself a moderate um, within the party as it exists. Moderation is something that many of the party um, delegates feel is going to be important. They need somebody, again, who can pick up enough Southern votes to win this election, right? The point is to win. Right. Um, Lincoln also does, um, moving into this, really play up kind of the honest Abe. He's, he may be unpolished, but he's trustworthy. Uh, he's a plain speaker. He's from the Western part of this country as it exists. Um, that's going to be important. And what Lincoln does at this convention- He's that also I, a common man. Yeah. Sorry. No, no, go ahead. He's also like a very much a common man. Like Seward's kind of seen as elite uh, partly because like they're going to paint him as elite. And Lincoln, you know, there's a, 
he they take like big axes big fake axes because lincoln used to be a rail splitter and they walk around his campaign rallies with them like he's you know seen as of the people so he's got this sort of like of the people kind of moderate um angle that he's playing and what he does at this convention is so savvy and i love it he basically makes himself everybody's second choice so lincoln is smart enough to say look I love Seward. Seward's a great man. Seward's done a lot for this party, a lot for this country. However, if he can't win on a ballot, maybe, you know, if, if in the first ballot Seward can't win it, maybe you could throw your support to me. And he yeah. goes to all these different factions, all these other candidates that are running against Seward and basically says the same thing to their supporters. Look, we all love your guy. But if he can't make it on the first ballot, if he can't defeat Seward, maybe you could throw your weight behind me. And he is, he's like, if there had been ranked choice voting, then he would have just been everybody's kind of second choice. And I think it's such a smart, smart move um, because he's not gonna come out swinging against the biggest names, but he's just gonna say, well, if your guy can't get enough and he can't get enough and nobody can beat Seward, maybe maybe if we all get together, I can. Yeah. Right. Or if Seward, if Seward can't bring the party together, maybe we need to find someone who can. And that's just how it plays out. It's three ballots, which if you've listened to some of our other election episodes, you know these conventions can go 15, 16, 20 ballots. Sure. But the Republicans, they want to win. They want to win this presidency. They understand that the country's at a turning point. And so after that second ballot, it's clear, right, that nobody singularly can beat Seward, but Seward cannot get enough votes on his own. And so that coalition comes together and Lincoln mm-hmm. wins on the third ballot. And this is, this is how he gets the nomination. There are a couple other important things that come out of this Republican Party convention regarding the party's platform. The first is that they are the party of preserving the union. This is very key whatever sectionalism is is riding around, whatever whispers and talk of secession have already started um, before 1860, there have been threats of secession in the past, anytime we'd sort of come up with these big compromises. Um, this is going to be the party that will keep the union together. This is key. The other is they are only at this point calling for the stopping of the expansion of slavery into new states as a party platform. This by no means reflects the the beliefs of every member of the Republican Party. There are many more radical uh, Republicans calling for abolition, but their idea is to offer a moderate stance and focus on that preservation element in this election. And I think that's it. That really helps us understand why Lincoln makes the choices he makes right Mm -hmm. in those early days of his presidency, because he's representing this party and this is what they have decided the party platform will be. So um, let's move it over to the Democrats. Hmm. Um, the Democratic conventions, conventions of 1860, the original Democrats in disarray, which is a phrase I hate and love at the same time. It's we, true, though. True. So true. Um, if, you're, if you're ever on Twitter, it comes up all the time. But this is kind of the original year of the Democrats in disarray because this party is a mess. They have been the dominant political party. Um, particularly in terms of holding the White House. Mm -hmm. But the party is increasingly splitting over the issue of slavery. Because at this point, Democrats are not just in the South. There are Democrats in the North and the West. Um, So the feelings about slavery um, sort of are on uh, on a little bit of a a spectrum here. There are some that feel like we have to be radically pro-slavery. There are others charting a more sort of moderate course. And there are some saying maybe we need to accept the fact that this is on its way out. And as a party, we need to evolve and adapt this. So um, they aren't sure how to move forward and they aren't sure um, how to handle whatever their Northern opposition is going to be. So they hold their first convention in Charleston and they fail to nominate a candidate. (laughs) So it's going to end up with two more conventions and they're going to end up with two different slates of nominees. So this is going you, to get very crazy very quickly. Can you imagine a convention where they fail to, no- I mean, I understand conventions today are more political theater than really like actual conventions, but like, can you imagine that they show up and are just like, yeah, we can't come to an agreement. How crazy is that? Like that's insanity. Yeah. And we have to kind of keep in mind, this is very different from not just convention say it's political theater, but you know, we also have a system today where there are so many primaries and 
caucuses and pre-events where delegates sort of make these, you know, commitments to, whereas when you were coming into this convention, you know, delegates could be swayed, delegates could change their mind, delegates had a lot more freedom to vote as they see fit. So yeah, so the first convention for the Democrats is in Charleston. Stephen Douglas of the Lincoln-Douglas debates is seen as the front runner. This is you know, a Democrat, but he's not from the South. So he's going to appeal to the North. He's going to appeal to the, the West. Um, he's got a very big national profile. Um, he's really sort of uh, considered a great orator and a great political sort of machine. And he is really going to run on this idea of the doctrine of popular sovereignty, that it is up to a territory to decide for themselves if they should allow slavery. And so this is sort of considered a more moderate position. You know, it's not the federal government's place to say, let's just let territories and states decide. So this is considered sort of the moderate view. I'm sure today we listen to this and go, that's crazy. Um, Why would anybody support this? But in the time, right, it's considered a a balanced political view. However, um, if you're from the deep south, you don't like this at all. You don't think that Stephen Douglas is going to protect you. And so a caucus forms of seven deep south states, and they basically are like anybody but Stephen Douglas. So they're mounting this pretty large um, sort of resistance to Douglas. Um, But before they even get a chance to really like get into the ballots and try to defeat Douglas in the votes, the Democratic Party adopts their slavery plank, and they adopt what the South considers is a too moderate plank on slavery, that they are not going to radically promote and preserve slavery, but rather sort of keep this popular sovereignty idea. So 50 delegates leave in protest. So now you have a convention and you've lost like a third of your voters. And um, that's not ideal. That's not great. No. Um, actually, more than a third. They've lost like almost half of their delegates. Um, and so it's decided, right? They have to decide what to do. Are they going to move forward? Are they going to vote? And it's determined that in order for Douglas to win this nomination, he must have a two-thirds vote of the entire delegate membership, not two-thirds of those present and voting. Oh, boy. So this is what is decided, which basically means there's nothing he can do almost unless even if every single person had voted for him, he wouldn't have been able to get to that two thirds number. So they do a couple votes, they debate, they argue, but ultimately Douglas can't do it. And so the convention just ends. There's no nominee. So this is not looking good for the Democrats, right? The the Republican parties, they pick Lincoln. They're ready to go. Um, yeah. the Democrats have to meet again and they're going to meet in Baltimore. So we were first in Charleston, now we're in Baltimore. Uh, And the first thing they decide to do is they have to debate whether they're going to allow those 50 delegates that had walked out to come back. So it starts with, okay, these people staged this protest. These people pitched a little, you know, temper tantrum. Are we going to let them back? And what they decide to do is to let them all come back except for Louisiana and Alabama, which were seen as the delegates who had spearheaded this protest. So then because they don't accept them all back, many delegates from the South protest and walk out. So now we're back in the same place with even less delegates than we started with. So it's really not going well for the Democratic Party. And at this point, the party decides we cannot, we're never going to move forward. We need to just make it so that the two thirds vote is for those present and voting. Like, forget this old ruling. We decided this in Charleston, that's clearly not working. And at this point, they're so over it. They're like, do we just accept Douglas as the nominee by acclamation? (laughs) Oh my God. And they're like, yeah, cool, okay. Okay, Douglas, let's go with that. What could go wrong? They end up up with Stephen Douglas, who was the front runner, but now this is the Democratic Party minus most of their Southern delegates which is a huge chunk of the Democratic Party at this time. It's not exclusively so, but it's a big portion of the Democratic Party. And these other Democrats have decided, forget it, we're doing our own thing now. So they will be sort of called the Southern Democratic Party, like in a lot of textbooks and things like that. They're known in the time in the papers as the Breckenridge Democrats. They're named for John C. Breckenridge, uh, who is sort of seen at this point as like the man leading the Southern coalition. So John C. Breckenridge is the sitting vice president at this moment. He is um, James Buchanan's vice president. He's also the youngest vice president we've ever had. Uh, And Becca, he is related to someone we've already talked about on this pod. 
He is the latest somebody that we talked about on this pod. Hmm. I I don't know. He's John a cousin. I don't know. No, he's a cousin of William Campbell Preston Breckenridge of Madeline Pollard. Oh, fame. of course. I, that's yeah. right. The name, the Breckenridge. Breckenridge. Anyway, uh, so John C. Breckenridge is a uh, he's Southerner through and through. He is, you know, he's got the family lineage. He's got the whole thing. And so the Southern Democratic Party is going to basically split. They're going to run John Breckenridge uh, and. Um, they adopt a radical pro-slavery platform and unsurprisingly nominate John Breckinridge uh, to be their standard bearer. So now you have the Republicans who have nominated Lincoln pretty easily. You have the Democratic Party who have somewhat reluctantly nominated Stephen Douglas and you have a splinter group uh, of Southern Democrats who have nominated John Breckinridge. But wait, there's more. There's more, which is just, we're already like, okay, so we've got three pretty well-known candidates. I mean, Breckenridge, like you said, sitting VP. So this Southern splinter group, they're not made up of just a bunch of nobodies. These are A, powerful voting blocks, um, and they have the sitting vice president who has a lot of name recognition and a lot known. Uh, but then there's another party. I, I mentioned that there were some Whigs who didn't all become Republicans. Uh, the Constitutional Union Party, they're also going to meet in Baltimore. Baltimore was just the place to be in 1860, apparently. Evidently. The Constitutional Union Party does not last very long. This is their only national convention ever, but it's sort of a hodgepodge of people. These are former Whigs, many of whom are from the South. There are moderates who feel sort of frustrated by the more radical Democratic and Republican parties. And then you have some people who are just sort of like, I don't know, maybe I have a better shot of like moving up the ranks if I attach myself to this fledgling party. So um, this particular convention is very different because they are just not going to talk about slavery at all. They will adopt no party position on it. It does not come up. The idea is that we believe in the constitution. We believe in preserving a union and that's kind of it. And that, that slavery thing, that's somebody else's problem, I guess. Right. We'll just kick it down the road. It'll be fine. Um, and so they're going to nominate a man named John Bell, uh, to be their, their nominee. Uh, but it's just sort of, you've got like people like Sam Houston are at this, um, convention you've got like sort of this just interesting mix of men that are sort of coming together john bell is a senator from tennessee seen as more moderate they don't want to talk about slavery the guy that he runs with edward everett uh is has one particular like addition in history uh but he is at the time attached to harvard university as the president of harvard and becca what's his like what's his little uh, addition to history edward everett Edward Everett, actually, and he's the name that comes up a lot in random places as you start to like do these sorts of things. Um, he would become a very well-known orator and he is a very well-known orator. And he was the, the primary key speaker at Gettysburg um, when they're dedicating the battlefield at Gettysburg. And he gives mm -hmm. a very long, you know, as was the, the way you did it back then, this like very um, flowery oratory about like war and sacrifice and loss. And then President Abraham Lincoln gets up and he, he speaks like two paragraphs and that is the most famous speech he ever gives. Right. No one remembers Edward Everett that day. Um, and I always kind of feel bad for him. A little um, bit, yeah. But it's interesting because this party, Constitutional Union Party, it's bringing together, um, you know, these wigs from the South that just, but they don't support secession, right? Um, it's bringing together some of these more moderate um, kind of Republicans who are opposed to slavery, but fear that by pushing the issue, we're going to divide ourselves as a nation. So you're bringing together a really weird mix and hodgepodge of people. But again, these are not fringe people. These are, you know, well-known politicians of the day in this party. I feel like this is the party where you go if you're not satisfied with any of the other three, like if they don't quite speak to you. And I feel like this demonstrates right here the sort of limits of our system is that we have a winner take all system as opposed to like having to form a coalition. Like had they had like had the Republican Party had to form some kind of coalition in order to gain a government, they would have had to work with these people because they're the closest to uh, any sort of Republican platform. They would have had to work together in order to form a majority. So I feel like 
this is a good spot for like a protest vote. Like if you don't, you're not served by the Republicans, but you're really not like super duper into slavery, you can kind of go here. But unfortunately, like with the winner take all system that we have, it ends up just making it insane and muddying the waters and no one knows which end is up. Yes. Um, and I think that's really important because, um, you know, the way our voting system works, the more splinters you have, the less we're actually building any really sort of coalition. Um, there's a few other people who are going to run sort of independently, randomly. Um, a man named Garrett Smith, who's um, an abolitionist, um, a very uh, active uh, member of the abolitionist community. He's a reformer. Um, he's in my like top 10 greatest beards in history, Garrett Smith. I mentioned him briefly um, in our Pearl episode, but uh, we should really do a Garrett Smith episode at some point. And then Sam Houston decides to run, which is just sure. sort of, okay, sure. Why not? Yeah. So what we have are four parties that have nominated candidates. Then we have two other pretty well-known men that are running. So you've got a recipe for a little bit of disaster. Yeah, a little bit. So we've talked about this in previous episodes, um, but elections, particularly in the 18th century, are run differently than they are run today. Normally, the candidates do not go and campaign. They're not out and about. They're not traveling around. They will send surrogates. They will send other people in their party to go give speeches on their behalf. Um, they'll encourage, you know, party operatives and party people to have gatherings, but for the most part, they stay home. Like Lincoln literally just stays home. He stays in Springfield. He will meet with people. If people are interested in his positions, um, people can come and talk to him and he'll talk, but he doesn't go out, right? He doesn't go give speeches, which is fascinating to me because Lincoln's so good at that. I think of like the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Um, I think about um, when he gives a house, the house divided speech, you know, earlier that year. He's so good at oratory. And then it's like, all right, six month election, you know, campaign or six month campaign. You're going to stay home, buddy. It's just such a, and this is my kind of campaigning right here. Like I want people to vote for me and not have to leave my house. Like that sounds really <laughs> great. Um, but it's just such a different style. And um, the, the, it's just interesting that no one really campaigns. That's not just Lincoln, like Douglas doesn't, Breckenridge doesn't. And the secessionists, and, uh, it's important to mention the pro-slavery portion of this electorate is hoping to throw this election to the House of Representatives. Because yes. if there's no clear majority electorally, it goes to the House. And the House votes, but they vote by state. So each state gets one vote, and that's going to put significant pressure on um, sort of whoever has is looking like they're having a majority, they have to take into consideration all these pro-slavery states because there's so many of them. And so that's their hope. Just throw it to the House of Representatives. So the Southern, the Southern Democratic Party, the Breckenridge Democrats, this is their game plan. Their game plan is that they don't want anyone to get an electoral victory because they are confident they will win in that the House, particularly because in 1858, they still controlled enough of that to make right. that a worthwhile plan for them. Now this election of 1860, there'll be new candidates um, nominated, but the vote is done by those seated in the 1858 election, which really right. favors them. Um, I will say there is one candidate who does kind of break with tradition and that is Stephen Douglas. Douglas is going to travel a bit. He actually not nearly to the extent that politicians campaign today. But Douglas actually goes both to the North and South. He attends events, he talks to voters, and he really tries to position himself as a unity candidate. He really does kind of travel around a bit and say, hey, I understand where you, where you are in the South. And he goes to the North and says, I understand where you're at. We're gonna just try to keep this together. So Douglas is really going to be kind of the one of the first to break with this tradition a little bit and get out there which at the time sort of starts to make people think maybe Douglas can pull this out. Maybe he can get enough support. Maybe the Southerners will realize this is the best way to go. Um, the other thing to sort of think about in this election is like, and this is still kind of true today, we don't have like a single federally mandated ballot that goes no, out. No, that's super interesting. And I always, this is one of those things that I always think about, like, this is true today. It is not federally mandated who's going to appear on the ballot. And so Lincoln, who is one of the four candidates, like major party candidates, does not appear on the ballot in like nine states in the South, which is insane. Like it's, he's, they're not even given the 
option to vote for him. And so it's really like, I mean, it's one thing when the like small party candidates who are going to get like 3% of the vote don't appear in every state, like, okay, you didn't qualify, but you have to do work in all, all of the states, all 50 today, in order to appear on the ballot in that state. And the state, he just does not appear on the ballot in nine states. So it's really remarkable. Uh, and this is true. Some of these ballots don't have the Constitutional Union candidate. Some of them don't have John Bell. Some of them don't have Breckenridge. So what you have, too, is we have states voting and they're not looking at the same list of candidates. So they're making decisions based on who is listed on the ballot. It's a bonker system. And I'm not pretending to know how to how to solve any of that. But it's no. <laughs> and it's also like, again, and I know this is obvious to us, but it's also worth mentioning this is pre social media pre really this, like there's newspapers, that's it. And only men vote only white men vote. And so what you end up having, and this is I think worth at least mentioning, is that you have white men across this country who are making these decisions that are going to affect the lives of millions of people of color who have no say, are not consulted, and are not given any, it is, they're talking about the fate of real human beings as if it like, as if it's one body and one monolith and they have no say and voice of their own. So it's this really just interesting moment in American history of why you're, you're seeing all of this go on and the people that they're talking about are not consulted. Like they're actually talking about slavery and slaves are not consulted. Yeah, not, not in the least. Um, and so we get to election day. It's November 2nd, 1860. The voter turnout is mind boggling. 81.2% of eligible voters uh, will turn out. That was the highest in American history at that time. It is uh, today by many considered the second um, biggest election turnout. It's hard to sort of compare in some ways um, because we have different pools of voters today than we had in 1860. But this is seen by many. And again, I, I'm really glad you sort of mentioned who these voters are. It is seen by white men yeah. as the most important election of their lifetime. This is it, right? We have to get out and vote mm -hmm. um, because no matter how you feel, you feel like the fate of what you believe the direction of the country should be hangs in the balance. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, the idea of 80% of eligible voters going out to vote is mind boggling in our present day. Today, if we get 60%, it's like an enormous number. Like that's just, I mean, we, we should have more voter turnout than we do, but we don't have compulsory voting. Um, it is really mind-boggling that so many people decide that this is so important and so vital that they're going to go. And I think this hits on what you said earlier too, right? Like they're living this history. They, we know how it turns out. They don't. However, even in 1860, they can acknowledge this is a historical moment. This is going to be, you know, the fate of the country rests in this election. So there's a lot of acknowledgement of that. And that's definitely the tone of newspapers and editorials at that time. So there's also a lot of media pressure to get out and vote. Lincoln, surprisingly, this is not how people think it's going to play out. And people, I think, forget this. He wins a very clear and definitive electoral college vote. So he wins the Electoral College really with no problem. And uh, he is writing on the back of a really good Republican groundswell in some key states. Um, he has attracted a lot of attention. Uh, his moderate position works in favor of the Republican Party. However, he only wins 40% of the popular vote. And he does not carry a single slave state. As you mentioned, he's not even on the ballot. So that's not surprising. I find this little statistic just fascinating. Out of 996 Southern counties, Lincoln won two. Wow. So if you had been, let's say, living under a rock up until November 2nd, 1860, but you looked at these election results, you're going to see the writing on the wall. Yeah. Something bad is going to happen out of this. This cannot hold, right? Um, there's clearly so much dissent. Oh, my gosh. And, and if you look at the map, of, yeah. it's so stark. The map is like insane. California and Oregon are states. And so that's the, the only two states in the West. They go for Lincoln, as does the entire North and Northeast and the sort of Northern Midwest. The South goes entirely for Breckenridge. Missouri is the only state that Stephen Douglas carries, which is not even his own, his home state. And the rest of the sort of middle of the country, 
the a very few states goes for Bell. Tennessee, uh, Kentucky, they go kind of for Bell. So it is so stark. And there is a thought that this is really evidence to the South that the North is taking us in a direction that we don't want to go in. It is not like, you know, in, in an election today where someone wins the, a, a state, but there are, you know, up to 45% of people who voted for the other guy. That is not an option for all of these Southern states. No one votes for Lincoln. He's not on the ballot. And so they are very nervous that this, you know, election of Lincoln means the North can force this president on us that we really do not want that we're going, they're taking us in a direction we don't want to go in. And so you can see how this like just goes, okay, we're out. This isn't working for us. And let's like break down the electoral count a little bit. Lincoln hits 180, which at that time was um, a clear, a clear electoral college victory. Breckenridge has 72 electoral votes though, which is pretty significant Mm -hmm. and really speaks to the weight electorally that the South holds. But also if you're a Southerner, and you're going, wait a second, look at how much support our candidate had. Um, why Why are we just accepting this election as, as you know, the end-all be-all? Bell picks up 39, a lot, as you mentioned, sort of, uh, not a lot of states, but some key states, particularly what we would kind of call these border states, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not the deep south, but right on the sort of border. And Douglas picks up 12, just Missouri, as you mentioned. Um, it definitely shows sort of a split. Um, you have to wonder if the Democratic Party had kept it together and kept as one united party, could they have figured out an electoral map that had worked for them? Maybe, Um, but it would have been really hard. It would have been hard if you add up Breckenridge, Bell and Douglas, you still get significantly fewer electoral votes than Lincoln had. And here's the thing, that's the electoral count, but on the popular vote side, Lincoln only 40%, Stephen mm-hmm. Douglas gets 30% of the popular vote. And I think that's telling because Lincoln and Douglas are fairly moderate candidates. Mm-hmm. And again, in, in the context of their parties and their parties' platforms. But a lot of Americans sort of support that position. Americans, I think, and many Americans in 1860 are afraid of war. They're afraid yes. of what secession means. Do we split up our union? Does the promise of this country, we're not even 100 years old as a nation when this election happens. No. So there's no guarantee that we're going to stay one United States forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not not even been 100 years. And so I think it's telling that the two candidates that are really talking about preservation, that are really talking about trying to keep the union united, are the ones that do well with the popular vote. Um, Breckenridge picks up 20%. Bell only gets 10% because I think having no opinion on slavery doesn't really help him. Yeah, no. Because <laughs> people don't know that. how to feel about it. So I really love the electoral kind of breakdown versus the popular breakdown is, I think, a really fascinating bellwether for public mood and opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, there's a lot of electoral weight in the South. Right. right. And um, the impact of this election, it comes immediately, right? It's an immediate right. reaction. The outrage, the anger, like you said, this fear in the South um, that they are going to be forced into a presidency yeah. that they don't support. Um, they also, it's not going great for the Democratic Party kind of across the board in um, congressional elections either. Um, So there's sort of this moving, shifting of power congressionally. And so they don't even wait. They don't even wait for Lincoln to be inaugurated. No. The uh, uh, South Carolina secedes about a month after the election. So December of 1860, and Lincoln hasn't even been inaugurated yet. By the time he is inaugurated, seven more states will have seceded. So it, this happens like dominoes very yep. fast, you know, and Lincoln is inaugurated in March in the those days inaugurations were March 4th, not January like we have now, which would have been a completely different scenario because by March, there are seven, eight states. They have started to form their own government. They are claiming to be another country. They have seceded. They're doing things to elect their own president. So the effect is immediate and you can just immediately see just based on the popular vote like Brecken like how powerful the south is how much they've sort of put their fingers on the scale of democracy Breckenridge wins 20 percent of the popular vote but yet wins 72 
electoral votes. So he has nowhere near a majority, but is yet, that's how powerful the South is. And so they, the system is weighted in their favor and they don't even like that. And so they are immediately, the backlash is going to be immediate. And Lincoln is seen by the South as a radical too. He's not like by any measure by then or now, he's not a radical. He's a charts of deliberately moderate course and the South is going to vilify him as uh, just out of control, crazy pants and going to leave almost immediately. So it's really like just this immediate effect. And with, you know, outside of those states that have seceded, there are several more that have debated secession. So he's mm -hmm. got states that are hanging in the balance as he comes mm -hmm. in. These states that have debated it, are planning to debate it, are planning to bring it back um, into the course. So not only does are you dealing with these states that have already said, we're a new country now, bye. Um, but you know that you could see another third of the country go that way, mm -hmm. um, the country as it exists at that time. And so he enters into that presidency with us just on this precipice. Right, Virginia is thinking about um, leaving and so is Maryland, which surrounds the Capitol, which is not good. Like Virginia has not left when he's sworn in, but it takes a couple of more days. And then Virginia secedes by the end of March. Uh, Maryland really thinks about it too. And Lincoln's going to ultimately deploy troops to keep them part of the union. So it's really like, you can just see, like he comes into office. It must've been like being just, I don't know. I can't even figure out a word for what this must've felt like for him. Like there is, suddenly half the country you thought you're going to be leading is gone and they're what to do um and many 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 of the people that you had been running and campaigning against are going to throw their support with the south actually that's exactly what bell does bell declares his support for the confederacy after fort sumner he does not sort of um speak in favor of secession as it's happening but once the battle and seizing of fort sumner happens um bell declares his support for the confederacy breckenridge goes on and leads troops in the confederacy um so you know lincoln's looking at these guys that he was running against for the same office and now they're leading war waging war against the country that they themselves wanted to lead mm -hmm. only a few months before so it's just like i mean without getting into the civil war entirely in this episode right. um everything though about the civil war is going to really start here and i think one other important impact of this election that i wanted to touch on for a quick moment is how it influences the way that lincoln builds his cabinet mm -hmm. lincoln knows, right, he wins this election, which he was not confident that he would um, win. He was not 100% sure. Uh, and he actually said three weeks before the election, Lincoln said that he would have preferred to have been in the Senate where there was more chance to make reputation and less danger of losing it than in the presidency. So he kind of knows as this election is getting close to the end, he's like, this is not great. Even if I win it, this is not going to be enjoyable. The, right. He sees it as there's only stuff to lose. There's nothing to gain. Right. Um, so Lincoln is smart enough to see that this, no matter if he wins or not, things are going to go badly um, for the country. Sure. Um, but also for his political ambition too, I would imagine, like if he lost this election, that's, he's done politically, like on the national stage. And if he wins, he's got to come to Washington and sort all this nonsense out. Like, this is not great personally, like, oh, great. I get to like hold the country together in the midst of all this. So, and then he wins and it's like before, you know, it's like excite, excitement for a day or two, but now he's facing secession. Now he's facing states debating leaving he's coming into a very tenuously held union and he starts thinking i i need i need help mm -hmm. and i need to really look beyond just the people who agree with me it can't be a i can't have a cabinet of moderation i need a cabinet that is going to look at this from every different angle i need a cabinet that has some sympathy to the South, some that is more radically um, pro-abolition. I need to bring together different perspectives. And it's, you know, because of the infamously um, popular book, we refer to it as that team of rivals. Today is, which is just a beautiful description of it. But he very, very wisely will go to his biggest political rivals. Um, and he does not just go to the men who share his perspective no. and his 
opinion on how to move forward. And it's so smart. Um, so he's going to go to William Seward. He's going to go to Sam and Chase. He's going to go to Edward Bates and Simon Cameron, uh, all of these men who, men who had been rivals of his, men who sat on either side of him in terms of views on these issues and bring them together. And it's one of, one of the smartest things Lincoln does. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I think it's also like telling that like of all the men who sort of run against him, it's Seward that he picks to be Secretary of State, you know, super close to the presidency, I think. And him and Seward evolve from being rivals. They evolve into this really tight friendship and they really respect each other. Um, And I think it just such it's so telling that that's, you know, and people have said that that's sort of the direction Lincoln wanted to head in anyway. Uh, but I think that Seward is just um, such a, it's such a, so interesting that he put Seward in his cabinet at such a very visible and public post. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just, I think, an acknowledgement too that he knows going in that this is only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. And he cannot just have this, the people, the kinds of people who backed his election behind him, he needs people who are going to push him, challenge him. He needs people that are going to argue um, both sides of this issue for him, that are going to help him see the value in war, the value in avoiding war, the value of being sympathetic to the South, the value of being hard on the South. He's going to need these varying viewpoints to find a way forward. And that, that um, sort of self-awareness is one of the many reasons that I have such respect for Lincoln as president, because he does not think he can do it alone. He does not think that he can just unilaterally navigate this time. He knows that he needs a cabinet that isn't just going to be a bunch of yes men. Yeah, exactly. So, wow, this really, um, this episode could take us down so many other paths because there's we're just now getting into the juicy part which is Lincoln's presidency and the Civil War Uh, and every like those four names I just rattled off earlier like four infinitely fascinating people in their own right Um, but I think that's this is maybe a good place to to stop and reflect Uh, what are your thoughts what what have I what do we not head on no I think we're good I um I just this election is so interesting to me because so much comes from this and the dominoes just start happening like events have been accelerating um, before this like with the Sumner attack and John Brown's raid but like this election just really accelerate so many of the existing divisions and you can just see like if you will put a link to the electoral um, breakdown in the show notes and you just see how like this really is an example of how divided the country is and they we splinter and fighting starts six months later like it's really just very rapid uh at this point uh and so i think that it just is such a great moment like how um lincoln navigates all of this and how the country kind of navigates this i think we did i think you did good and now of course the juicy part is the civil war starts and That's a whole different thing. <laughs> I should, I want to do a small little coda on Stephen Douglas too, because Douglas is, I, I find, a just infinitely fascinating figure, which is sort of like he, you know, loses this election, obviously. Uh, and he he is now kind of on the outs in many ways with a bulk of his party because, you know, there's been this whole big Southern break. And Douglas is still a senator, so he goes back to the Senate. Um, and he really, I mean, he will not, spoiler, be in the Senate much longer, but um, he is in the Senate and he really tries to avoid war, right? He's part of this group of congressmen that are trying to keep the union preserved, trying to um, get the South back in a way that avoids bloodshed, which is, I think, a noble position, if maybe a little naive. Um, but understandably, yeah. nobody, uh, not, not, not nobody, but many people don't want to go to war. Uh, they don't want to see bloodshed over this issue. Uh, he meets with Lincoln to really try to get Lincoln to support a peace conference idea. And even though Lincoln's sort of unwilling to support the particular conference, um, Douglas calls his meeting with Lincoln peculiarly pleasant, which is a really nice way to describe it. But he says just about a month later, I've known Mr. Lincoln a longer time than you have or than the country has. He'll come out all right and we all will stand by him. So Douglas really uh, sort of tries to rally support for the union. He tries to rally support behind Lincoln. Um, He goes out to the Midwest to kind of get Midwesterners to support the union and to get into this. And then he falls very ill in May of 1861, uh, and he's going to pass away on June 3rd, um, which is kind of 
right as the war is really truly breaking out. Um, yep. So Stephen Douglas doesn't live much longer after this election, but I, I think it is a testament to Douglas that in his final months, his concern is keeping the union preserved, trying to avoid war if possible, but when war becomes inevitable, um, he is throwing his support behind the union and Lincoln. Um, yes. And I think that's a, a testament to Douglas's character. Absolutely. Ooh, someday we'll have to do a whole episode on Siva Douglas, though, because there's good stuff. There is. There this is. was so fun. This was great. I love these election episodes. I think that, as we always say when we do these, um, we tend to think of our politics of today as really um, political fights of today is very unique and unlike anything in our political past. But the truth is, there's a lot more that is the same than different. Yes, everything <laughs> is old that is old is new again. It's true. <laughs> Yes, there's nothing new under the sun. So um, thank you, as always, to our wonderful listeners. Thank you for asking for more election episodes. We love it. Um, we got a great email this week with some wonderful um, Pitch the Pod ideas. So please know that when you email us to Pitch the Pod, uh, we definitely factor that in. We're going to have some episodes coming up, especially in the new year, that are direct uh, listener requests. So don't be afraid to email us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on social media at tourguidetellall on Instagram and Facebook and at tourguidetell on Twitter. Thank you guys very much. And we'll be back with you in a couple weeks. Excellent. Thank you guys. Bye. Bye.